they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lip. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Ghost Rose. Right? Absolutely. Ghost Rose. <laughs> I've never been more excited about a team winning the World Series than ever. Not even the Cubs. <laughs> Mainly because I hate the Nationals now out of principle. Um, now we've lost all our DC <laughs> listeners, <we> Nick. <laughs> Bye, guys. See you later. <laughs> uh, hi, guys. Welcome back. It's Barstool Politics. I'm your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hi, Nick. Hey, Nick. Hi. And we have our original super guest, Dr. Suzanne Chod, with us today as well. The OG is back. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Good to have you. I'm so happy to be back. I appreciate it. Uh, before we get started, all the usual fun stuff. Uh, if you guys like the podcast, have questions, comments, beer suggestions, anything like that, follow us on Twitter uh, at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics, uh, the podcast, um, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms, uh, and then beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, and if you've been with us for the past few weeks, we announced that we're doing a live show as well. So that's November 20th, mm-hmm. uh, 6.30 p.m. Uh, here in Naperville on North Central's campus. Um, it's completely free. Uh, come join us. Uh, myself, Bill, Phil will be there as well as uh, Suzanne and uh, uh, senior legal analyst Tom Cavanaugh will be there as well. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be a ton of fun. We're going to do some questions, kind of do what we normally do and uh, and take it from there. Um you guys are welcome to just show up. Uh, there are tickets that you can get uh, through Eventbrite. You can just search for Barstool Politics on there. It kind of helps us to get a headcount. Don't have to do it. Like I said, everything is completely free. Um, but it would certainly help us out to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like I said, November 20th, which is a Wednesday, I believe. It is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 6.30 uh, to 8 p.m. Um, yeah, come join us. It'd be a lot of fun. Lots of fun. Um Suzanne, I'm really excited that you're here because I've like I've, I've wanted to kind of dissect everything that's been going on yeah. with you specifically, oh, yes. um, and it's I, I, I really want to get into the nitty gritty about it. Um, before we do that, Bill, can you kind of give us just a breakdown of everything sure. that's going on? Absolutely. So we learned this week that House Democrats will vote on Thursday to formalize procedures for the next phase of the impeachment inquiry into President Trump. Democrats said the move would quote ensure transparency and provide a clear path forward. While the Democrats are looking forward, we thought it would be useful to take a look back, in particular, to look back at the country's previous attempts at impeaching the president. And we're absolutely lucky to have our expert on on the matter, uh, Professor Suzanne Chad, who just recently gave a public lecture comparing the Nixon and Clinton impeachment efforts to the current inquiry into Trump. (laughs) Suzanne, the ways in which this impeachment is similar, but also dramatically distinct from the Nixon and Clinton cases is really fascinating. So what can we learn? Let's, let's, you know, let's dive in. Where where do you want to start? I mean... 
I have this giant outline that we, gentlemen we did. It's can a big, see. It's big two outline. pages because <laughs> I'm nothing if not prepared. Um, so for me, it's it's sort of three major themes, and I'm happy to talk about all of them or none of them, depending on what y'all are interested in. So one of them is the timeline from announcing the impeachment inquiry to voting on the impeachment inquiry to, to it actually rolling out. And so much of what we're hearing now is that this is unprecedented. It's taking so long. The way the House Democrats are doing it is not within the rules of the House and all of this. And so um, one of the things I found, and we can talk again, talk about it more, is that the timeline across the three impeachments from uh, talking about having an inquiry to voting on an inquiry to the impeachment happening are all very similar. So I think that's something we could we could talk some more about. The second thing um, to compare are the president's excuse me approval ratings before, during, and I guess we have after at least for for Clinton or during and after for Clinton, and how they're markedly different across all three of them. And then the third thing is the way that they uh, have handled the situation. So how they're talking about the process, how they're talking about the players, how they're or doing none of those things at all, and. Across all of those, when you look at the similarities, we may expect to see things with Trump look more like Nixon. We may expect them to look more like Clinton. We may expect it to look like neither of those things, depending on particularly what happens on Thursday. Um, but the the presidential approval to me seems to be the thing that is the most interesting when we look at how all three of first two played out, third might play out. For me, when you made the talk, that was most interesting. So why don't you tell a little bit about the what happened to approval ratings for both Nixon and Clinton? Because yes. I think that is a really interesting contrast to Trump. So I did actually a little more research on this today, just to be sort of holistic about the whole thing. So first of all, if you look at the beginning of Nixon's second term, so he wins in a landslide in 72. So beginning of 73, his approval rating is 68%, which is really, really high. Even for a president who's in his second term, This is that's a a very high. He was a popular rating. president. Very at that point. popular president. But by May of the same year, when the Watergate hearings start in the Senate, not implicating Nixon yet, just think, looking at the break in and have all of these things are playing out. All So then his approval rating drops 20 points. It's 48% just within that three month period. So as, because this is one of the first times we've seen these things on television, right? And so now people are being exposed to it. They're interested in it. They're seeing the intricacies <clears throat> of it. More and more is unfolding to show that maybe Nixon was somehow involved in this or at least knew that it was happening, knew the people that were it was, that it was happening. By August of that year, so three more months, his approval rating is 31%. Mm -hmm. So it drops in six months. It drops, uh, what, 37%. And all of this is just exposure to the, the hearings and more information coming out. And of course, Woodward and Bernstein are doing their thing. Washington Post is starting to break stuff. So just within that period, before we even have an impeachment inquiry, before we even have the Supreme Court saying, hand over the tapes, his approval rating already dropped over 30 points. So by the time he resigns, it's at 24%. <laughs> wow. Which, funny statistic, George W. Bush, when he left office, his approval rating was actually lower really? than Nixon's oh at 24%. God. Yes. I knew it had gone down. 24, yeah. that's surprising. It's hmm. Yes. So... What happens, though, we look at approval rating and then we look at approval, the public approval of impeachment and removal. So support for removal was only 19 percent in the summer of 73. So as things are starting to heat up and his approval rating starting to dip. But at the time he resigned in August of 74, before the House even impeaches him, the, the approval of removal from office is 57 percent. So the writing is on the wall, right? Like the Supreme Court's going to make him turn over the tapes. The public is would rather him not be president than president. And he's like, all right, I'm just going to, I think I'm just going to take my leave now. Yeah. 
that process has a dramatic impact on those numbers, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Absolutely. I, you wonder whether that could happen today, but that certainly mm-hmm. is, that is a dramatic movement. And and what I will say, we compare this to Clinton, just uh, which I'm happy to do, but just this one part I think is really interesting is that when you look at this, the public opinion or asking people during the Nixon impeachment, are you watching the hearings? Do you know what's going on? And like 90% of people were up to date on everything that was happening. Sure. For Clinton, almost nobody was paying attention. They weren't watching the hearings. They 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 were so oversaturated with the discussion and so disgusted with the whole idea of removing him from office that they weren't even watching and paying attention. Mm-hmm. And so we could potentially see some correlation where you're watching the hearings, approval rating goes down, approval of removal goes up, you're not paying attention, popular president, good economy, it stays and even goes up, and then approval of removal goes down significantly. Mm-hmm. So I think there's something about the transparency and how you're paying attention to the process. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So, yeah. Talk about the Clinton's, Clinton's oh, numbers. Oh, yeah, Clinton's yeah. numbers. Okay. <laughs> oh, go ahead, Phil. I, I was going to – well, we can we can come back to it. We talk, talk Clinton and then we'll come back to Trump some. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Okay. So um, the the House Judiciary Committee um, votes on, the, on four articles – four articles of impeachment in the second week of December, and then um, the House accepts two of them the week later. And so the week of the House vote on impeaching the president, uh, excuse me, the week before that, um, right? So the week between the House Judiciary Committee and then the House impeaching, his approval rating was 63%. After he's officially impeached by the House, his approval rating is 73%. So it goes up by 10 points. So impeachment actually improves. It did. And this is not like noise or margin of error. Not This is real movement across party, across people that most, when you look at the public opinion or you look at the data, that most people thought he lied. Mm -hmm. Most people thought he maybe tried to obstruct justice. But two thirds of the people thought that neither one of those things warranted impeachment or more specifically removal from office. So they're like, you're kind of a bad guy. You shouldn't have slept with the woman. You shouldn't have lied about it, even though then you admitted you lied about it. But we don't think you should be removed. And we feel bad for you because of this witch hunt coming at you, which he never played the witch hunt card, but others played it for him. Mm -hmm. And his approval goes up 10%. Hmm. So during the entire process, the lowest his approval rating ever hit was 65. That's, That's during the five-week Senate trial, right? The Senate mm. trial is a, is five weeks from beginning of January to the middle of February. And on the day that they voted to not remove him from office, his approval rating was 68%. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Now, I think there's a couple things going on. One is that almost a supermajority of people thought that the whole thing was just Democrats and Republicans yelling at each other and that Clinton was the victim caught in the middle of this partisan game. And Clinton played that card very, very well. But the other was that um, 89% of people thought the economy was good, which it was. And people who thought the economy is really good went from 29% to 41% during the impeachment. So economy's good. You got a president who's caught in a political game. He steps out and says nothing about it, but just governs. And he comes out smelling like roses, Mm -hmm. but like lied, Mm -hmm. like legit lied. (laughs) And people were aware of what he was doing. It wasn't as if they didn't realize he had lied under oath or that he had these affairs, right? Everybody was aware of who Bill Clinton was and they said it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And they did not want the Senate to remove him. So they didn't watch. Nobody paid attention to the Senate trial. Hmm. There's some things there, Phil. (laughs) (laughs) Biding his so, time. So, I, I mean, I, tying this to Trump, I, I see some parallels or I'm kind of curious about what your take is on it. Um, you know, you mentioned that Nixon, uh, his 
support for impeachment for removal from office goes from 19% to 57%. Um, and so we turn to Trump, right? We're in the 50s already, right? So this was, I mean, the, it had been hovering for a long time in the, what, mm-hmm. 30s or whatever. And then once Pelosi comes out and says, we're going to begin official mm-hmm. impeachment uh, hearings, it jumps with the Ukraine stuff. That, so a lot of stuff coincides there, but it jumps Mm-hmm. to the high 40s and it's been inching up. So it's now I haven't seen in the last couple of days, but it's in the low 50. Okay, it's all right. 49%. So it's right around 50%. Um mm-hmm. so yep. That is interesting. I mean, that tells me that we're potential I mean, that's I don't you didn't I don't think you mentioned that with Clinton, uh but he never got to that point. We're already there with um with uh right. you know where Nixon was. It didn't cross the with Nixon it it didn't get to 50% until shortly before he actually resigned if I remember correctly. So, I mean, we're already there. On the other hand, That's Nixon's right. really popular right. and his popularity plummets throughout this. Trump has never been popular, right? I mean, he's been, he's not at the 20% level, but he's been at the 40% <laughs> approval approval rating. So um, I, a couple of questions that I, I, I mean, I guess, how do we make sense of that in turn, or how, what would you, how would you interpret the, the Trump situation in that context? Because if we go, uh, you know, if the Democrats vote, or if it's not the Democrats, if if the House votes to make this an official public inquiry, which I, I think was actually a pretty smart, we can talk about that, pretty smart move on Pelosi's part, right? The, the, the sort of closed sessions lead Republicans to say, this should be out in the open, this should be out in the open. And now Nancy Pelosi's like, all right, let's put it out in the open. So um, we live in a day and age <laughs> in which I, I don't know that there's going to be as much fascination as there was with um, Nixon in terms of people sitting around all day watching hearings, but I think they'll be more interested than they were in, in Clinton. Um, but we have partisanship, right? How much, how much, uh, support for Trump Mm -hmm. is there that could possibly erode still? Is there a point ever at which Trump walks away? Is his personality different? I mean, I kind of put all this into, into, I'm kind of curious about you putting this into context. Mm -hmm. Well, so it's all of the things you just said, right? It's, I think the biggest difference, although we start to see the polarization we have now after the 94 midterm. So when we're in, you know, the, the Gingrich house and the Clinton impeachment, all this is going on, we're starting to see the uptick, right? In mm-hmm. polarization. But the thing I think that's very different is that we look at for the vote for removal in the Senate for Clinton, for example, the Republican conference couldn't even get a majority of their own members to vote for his removal. That is so different. From what we're seeing now, the, the the tribalism, right, the partisan dehumanization, all the things that we're seeing that keep the parties so far apart from each other where, you know, he still has an 84 percent approval rating with Republicans and Lindsey Graham licking his ass all day still. Yeah. Right. I mean, that was a really graphic <laughs> example. Kissing was a better word to use there. It's a family show here, Suzanne. Sorry, well, you know, when you get me on, you never know what's going to happen. Um, that, you know, you see very few members of government, both House and Senate members of the Republican Party, that are talking anything but the talking points Trump wants them to say, even though he hasn't created them because he doesn't need a team, right? So I think the major difference is the Republican Party staying almost solidly behind him and this discrediting of the process that that has been in Trump's wheelhouse since he announced his candidacy in June of 15 is the same thing that the Republicans are doing in Congress. You discredit the process. You talk about not transparency. You talk about not having access. You keep going with that. And it's not going to move the needle on whether Republicans think that he A, did anything wrong or B, want to remove him from office. 
And I think that's one of the most big, I, I, the biggest so a, differences. So a follow-up uh, question on that, which was – so I, my understanding is that the Republican Party was pretty solidly behind Nixon until they weren't as well, right? Wasn't that a pretty late turn? And and I guess I wonder um, – I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't, you know, I've, students have asked me this as well. Like, is there a point at which the Republican Party turns on him? Um, and and I, I guess my question is, if if public is there a point where even the self interested, like we're going to mm-hmm. stick together Republican Party, where it doesn't make sense anymore mm-hmm. for them to stand by him because mm-hmm. public support for impeachment has hit sixty five percent? Or I mean, do you do you see a point at which that change happens? Right. So I think one of the biggest differences between the two scenarios, because as you say, the Republicans were solidly behind Nixon until they weren't, is that um, we didn't see the sort of vilification of the other side to the point where with this, it's a deep state conspiracy, Mm -hmm. right? It's the fake news. It's the elite media. It's the corrupt system that has fabricated all of this evidence and is in cahoots with the whistleblower and the, you know, the Ukrainian guy today that testified as a spot, whatever it is, right? But with the Nixon impeachment, it became very clear to every member of Congress when they were able to see these documents before they even heard the tapes, there wasn't a mistrust of the evidence or of the process the way that there is now. Even though Nixon was so paranoid and tried to blame everybody, there was sort of irrefutable evidence along with not the type of partisanship we see now where... I think that was where that big turn by the Republican members of Congress came which is, with Nixon. Which is interesting because I think between those two, certainly it's more partisan now, mm-hmm. but that that evidence is becoming more and more I, – I, I feel some bit of – I feel bad for Republicans because – especially in the <laughs> Senate because you continue to have to defend Trump over and over and over mm-hmm. again and everybody who testifies reinforces basically the same story. Right. And I think you're right that they're, they're still circling the wagons now. Mm-hmm. But at what point – do they say enough is enough, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe they don't reach that point. Maybe they continue to say, we're going to protect this president. Right. It's better for the party. Right. But even this week, you saw a couple new you know, articles in the Washington Post and the New York Times where Republicans said, we're, we're exhausted defending this guy. Yes. Uh, I, I do wonder whether there is a tipping point. Right. And then once we hit that tipping point, it could be really fast for those approval ratings to drop. It, it could. It could. And the <laughs> the thing that while all of what you said is right, and I absolutely agree, I think the one thing to keep in mind about Senate removal is that it requires 67 senators. That's a lot. Yeah. 47 Democratic senators. And if we presume every single one of them votes for removal, depending on how many articles of impeachment there are, right, they vote on each one separately. But if passing one, he's out. Doesn't yeah. matter if they both, you know, one of them fails or whatever. 20 Republican senators would have to join them. So even if some turn, mm-hmm. the idea that 20 Republican senators, we think about the Democrat, the, the Senate map in 2020, there are not 20 vulnerable Republican senators mm-hmm. in 2020 or 2022 or 2024, mm-hmm. enough of them that they would look at their state constituency and say, okay, what is the approval for impeachment? What does this do for my reelection chances? Okay, I'm going to vote to remove. You get Mitt Romney, and then you still got to find 19 more. <laughs> How do you do that, right? right I mean, yeah. you look at like Susan Collins, you look at Lisa Murkowski, you look at a couple, but is 20? There, yeah. Is there a place, That's is tough. there a point yeah. where electoral calculation comes into it in which, uh, so he, he's not going to, maybe he won't get convicted in the Senate, but uh, you know, ongoing hearings on TV of, of you know, people coming on, corroborating mm-hmm. the story, chip away at his approval to the point that it's he's right. just not going to win, right? There, he's that chances of of winning the presidency are really low. Is there a point where, you know, I, I try to approach this yeah. 
sort of cynically, right? Is there a point where the Republican Party says, all right, it makes sense for you to walk away. We're going to let, you know, some other person, Mike Pence, whoever else uh, run in your in, in your place. And, you, you know, you cement your legacy. You can go down mm-hmm. as, uh, you know, you can make the claim that you've been right. railroaded out of town forever and Mike Pence will pardon you and, and everyone's happy. Everyone wins that way. Um, I don't, is that, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe that's just totally naive that that would ever happen. But I mean, in some ways that's kind of what happened. I mean, it's the electoral <laughs> calculus, right? It's right. a political process, a, a impeachment in some way. Mm-hmm. That's right. I mean, I, I, sorry. Just no, please. Um, I, I mean, to your earlier point, his approval rating among Republicans is still extraordinarily high. It's not 95, as he no, said. No, he said it was Again, 90. He keeps today. tweeting 95%, 95%. <laughs> and full of shit. It's 84. That's still pretty good. You know, it's not nothing, is, yeah, but it has never been right. 95. No, yeah, no, never. But, but if 80, 84%. Uh, approval rating among among Republicans, that should be your electoral calculus right there. Mm-hmm. As much as you might have personal misgivings or or um, distrust of what he's doing or what right. the administration is doing, right. those are your constituents. Yeah. At some point, you're going to have to answer for that. Right. And realistically, if you go down that road, I, I mean, we talk about the moral calculus of it all the time, but that's kind of the, the yes, it's it's mm-hmm. the reality of the situation. Like, well, I, I'm not sure they'll ever get to that. Point. And this is uh, Phil. You've talked about this before. Who's driving the Republican Party? Yeah. Is it is it voters or is it it is it elected leaders? And now the the public is in control of this party. So that's that's different from maybe previous eras mm-hmm. where uh, the party was controlled by those in power. Well, and now to yes, and now to Nick's point is that you you can look at you know this is one of the reasons that Nancy Pelosi I think very smartly because Phil you brought this up earlier. Um, is now going forward with the vote, but held off because she had to check with every single member of her caucus to say, and they tested messages to make sure that members who were elected in districts that Trump won, right? Or they're in their first reelection battle and they don't know, you know, this is their most vulnerable, right? And so they may get primaried by someone further to the left, right? But on the same token, you may have Republican members who are worried about getting primaried from the right, if they speak out against the president, mm-hmm. but maybe they serve in a district that Hillary Clinton won, but they may still get primaried from the right. And then who are they? So there's so many moving pieces in both parties. When you look at the House about for whether Republicans may vote on articles of impeachment, right, depending on the electoral calculus and mm-hmm. whether some Democrats, you know, knowing the 218 votes is all Nancy Pelosi technically needs. But you need every single member of the caucus to vote for this. You have to. You have to have unanimity as best as you possibly can to really show that there is not just a couple of members or barely a majority that think that this 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 should be. So taking the time, testing the messages to try to get every single Democratic member to vote, I think, was is what she was trying to do. OK, that's it, because the last thing that I had read about that was that when the the, the formal inquiry process or, or vote on it was announced that a lot of even senior Democratic members were completely caught off guard by mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. which seems I, I mean, prior to this, the 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 narrative was, no, we're not moving down that road yet. There's no reason to. You know, this is a talking point for Republicans. And all of a sudden here it's here now. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm just I'm trying to, I guess, rectify those two pieces. I, like I'm still. I don't necessarily understand the calculus behind her decision to do it right now. It doesn't seem like as much as we say there is new information coming out and more pieces are kind of falling into place. Mm -hmm. um, Looking at the different components that we're talking about right now doesn't necessarily seem to equate to 
their decision to move forward with this at this moment. So you think it should have been, it should have already happened or it shouldn't, it shouldn't happen yet. No, I think it should have happened immediately. Oh, right, right. So I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, to me, it seems like a a missed opportunity to start from this point, because realistically, if you're, if you were thinking about it, I'm, I'm not sure what change in the process, you know, for lack of a better term overnight, Mm -hmm. that would drive them into the complete opposite camp or or Pelosi specifically into completely reversing her decision on this. Well, I don't think, excuse me, I don't think she ever said that they wouldn't hold a vote. She just said they were holding off on it. Right. And Mm -hmm. and again, it seems overnight because all of a sudden we get this news break that, you know, that she's going to do it. But we know behind the scenes, so much of this movement was happening and this whipping of her caucus to make sure that if they did it, that they had as many members as they possibly could and that they were safe. They knew every member is going to talk the same, use the same points, well, and that they're going to do that, that's got to come into also the he- the hearings that have been happening. They, as the facts come out and as public opinion right. gets more solidly behind impeachment, it makes it a safer bet to move forward with this in a formal way. I, I would assume that that, is, that plays a part as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think so. And <clears throat> one of the things that <clears> – <throat> excuse me. I'm getting over being sick, so sorry, listeners and the guys. Sorry to you, too. <laughs> um, that one of the things I think we forget – and I honestly forgot when we look at this, the Trump situation right now is that back in, I have the date, um, back in September, September 12th, Jerry Nadler, the chair of the Judiciary Committee, they had a formal measure and a vote on parameters for an impeachment inquiry. So this whole idea that, you know, no vote was ever taken, the Judiciary Committee didn't do anything, and all of a sudden, you know, Pelosi single-handedly launches an inquiry without anything happening before that. Um, that this is exactly what happened with Nixon, is that they first had a Judiciary vote on setting parameters so that we know what the roadmap is moving forward. And then there is a pretty big gap, at least in the Nixon impeachment, before they even vote on the inquiry. So this is not uncommon for it to happen in these ways. So, And that's interesting. But it's be- a conspiracy. <laughs> it is a deep state conspiracy. <laughs> and I, I think about, you know, a week from now, I think you make a good point, Nick, but a week from now, if this is an official inquiry and then all of a sudden you're having open hearings, mm-hmm. I don't know if this matters anymore, right? So it's, it's a good talking point for Republicans to say, oh, the process is closed door, uh, you know, all mm-hmm. of this, they should be moving more quickly, they should make it formal. Mm-hmm. Be careful what you wish for, because now, I mean, to, to Phil's point earlier, now it's in the open. Right. It's an official inquiry. All of this testimony is now going to be public. I think people will forget some of the criticism of the process early once more of this stuff is like daily being fed to the the public. Sure, that's true. Yeah. Realistically, even if that's if this moves forward and we move into public hearings, the narrative is just going to shift into, well, this was completely orchestrated by the Democrats to begin with. There's no support in the House. The Senate wants nothing to do with this. And this changes nothing. This is still a Democratic-led political process. Which is what happened with Clinton, where it was the opposite, where it was a Republican. Re- so it's exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Although if, if the Republicans can only criticize the process and Democrats can continue to bring witness after witness that says. But on the same situation, we're still talking about the Ukraine call. Right. Exactly. Have, right. Which is still kind of opaque in a lot of people's minds, especially in Republican minds. In Republican That's, minds. Right. Yeah. Right. Yes. But, but in Democratic minds, it's clear. And then the question is, like, among those middle, you know, moderate voters, where are they going to? move one way or the other if what is the economy doing well depends on from where you sit right this is also different you know subjective indicators of the economy now is how we look at economic measures there's Mm -hmm. no more objective indicators of the economy because everybody sees it differently can we can we talk about timing a little bit because when you named the when you went through at the beginning stuff that we could talk about you know one of the things you talked about was timing and how this has lined up 
very yeah. clearly with both the Clinton and the Nixon impeachment. <clears throat> and and that then brings the question of, well, what does that tell us about yeah. this? Like, how quickly will this move if if we draw conclusions from the two previous, the two most recent yeah. examples? Um, you know, are we talking three weeks from now? Are we talking three months from now? How will this likely play out? <clears throat> So it could it, it could be both of what you just said, right? It could. So we look at the for for Nixon, for example. So we see October of seventy three is where the judici- the Judiciary Committee voted on parameters of impeachment, right? And then in February of seventy four, the House approved the inquiry. So that's a big that's gap a because there was so much investigation happening. They had subpoenas. They were you know the special counsel that was heading up the impeachment inquiry was appointed. This is a big gap where they were getting so much information and then the house finally votes on the inquiry. So that's a huge gap. That's a, you know, three, about a three month gap. And then it took five and a half, almost six more months for the house judiciary committee to pass the articles of impeachment. Cause that's July, end of July. Hmm. It's five months from the inquiry opening until the judiciary committee passing the articles. And then, of course, we know that the House never gets that far because then Nixon resigns before. Mm -hmm. But if we then fast forward to Clinton, because we get the second half of that story, right, where the impeachment actually occurs. So in September, September 11th of 98, the House as a body votes to see the Ken Starr's report. And then they release about 400 pages to the public. So that's in September of 98. Two weeks later, the House Judiciary Committee says, "Okay, let's do an impeachment inquiry. And then... Week and a half later, the House votes to adopt the impeachment inquiry. So now we're seeing a shorter timeline. Yep. And then it was December when the Judiciary Committee officially voted to pass articles of impeachment. So that's like two months later. And then a week later, the House impeaches him. But the other thing, though, the important to note is that Ken Starr had been investigating for years, two years, right? So there's years. a difference. And he he basically drops a finished report he does. on the Congress, which yes. is different than what we're still gathering information right. on Trump. Yes. But that's really still really fast. It was like slow and then super fast, yeah. right? And then the House impeaches in December. And two weeks later, the Senate starts the trial. And that's a five-week trial. Mm. Yeah. So, Phil, your point, like how fast or slow could it go? We see fast and slow just within the Clinton impeachment, and then we see pretty so McConnell has already started. I mean, at one point he was talking yeah. about uh, uh, doing the trial in January and moving quickly. I mean, that seems that to indicate that he thinks that articles of impeachment will be passed by the end of this year, and and I, that doesn't surprise me all that much. It seems like it's in the Democrats' incentive to make sure they have a thorough, you know, investigation. They bring people through, but also not drag this out. Uh, I mean, based on what you you know what you've seen or what you've talked about here with 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 Clinton and with with Nixon, I mean, what would be your pre- I, so? I would assume that the the smart prediction is that that Trump will be impeached. Um, uh, but like, when do you what what do you what do you see? Like, when do you see that likely happening? Um, and and how do you see this moving forward? Well, so now that Pelosi announced the formal vote on the inquiry, this what two days from now, right? Um, it seems to me that it. Once they start the open hearings and they have all this testimony from the depositions already um, and they can start releasing, to Bill's point, releasing more of this publicly, whether this starts to sway public support is going to be an interesting thing. And whether the the Republicans in the, in the Senate in particular could continue to, to um, I won't use my euphemism I used before, but continue to support <laughs> him and speak, um, that it seems to me that this could go really quickly, right? Because while I don't think that the Democrats should bring the Mueller report back in, I think that that would be a really... 
stupid move that they need to really focus solely on abuse of power and obstruction of justice. I think those are the two articles of impeachment that are likely to pass. But that could go relatively quickly. So I don't I don't see why we couldn't have a quick kind of Clinton-esque sort of timeline from passing, from going from the inquiry to the impeachment articles in the Judiciary Committee to the actual impeachment. The real challenge is going to be as they continue to investigate, more is going to bubble up. Yes. And do you go down those rabbit holes or do you say this is just about Ukraine? I mean, the Mueller report, the problem with the Mueller report, it was just confusing. It was complicated. It was right? too long. You know, the American public isn't going to pay attention to all of that. Right. The Ukraine thing is simple. It's yes. about a phone call. Yes. You can interpret, you know, that that's, that's all you focus on. That's right. So there is, and I, I almost wonder whether they don't just go with one impeachment article, abuse of power, yeah. and say, that's what we're going to do, yes. all in one, right. not even get into the obstruction of justice, which I think could be legitimate, uh, yeah. yes. but keep it simple, stupid. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and but here's what, the abuse of power is really tricky, right? Because that was one of the articles that it was, um, one of the four articles that was, was it three? Three articles for Nixon was mm-hmm. abuse of power. And that was one of the first times that we had actually thought about it, although the framers talked about abuse of power being something that we should be included in high, you know, in high crimes and misdemeanors, right? Um, but for Clinton, it was four impeachment articles and abuse of power didn't even pass the House. Hmm. So I think abuse of power is tricky. But I like it. I, I don't disagree <laughs> with you, right? But obstruction of justice is the thing that has gotten the most traction hmm. if you look at the Nixon and the Clinton impeachments. It's been obstruction of justice because it's more tangible, right? Abuse of power is hmm. squishy. Quid pro quo is abuse of power, but it's if you can't prove beyond a reasonable right. doubt it was quid pro quo, but you can prove there was a cover up for something that maybe was wrong. Oh. And that's where Clinton got tripped up, right? That's and Nixon, for mm-hmm. sure. So for me, I think obstruction of justice, even though Mueller laid it out beautifully, you can't go back there. I think for this, the surest bet is obstruction of justice. That's really interesting because, uh, you know, the for the Mueller report, the, the obstruction of justice section was just so overwhelming. So there. And it felt like if you're going to make a case, you make a case on that for obstruction of justice. Yeah. And you're right. They can't go back. They can't nope. do that again because that, you know, that would, they would lose instantly. Yep. But it's, it feels to me like it's going to be harder to make the obstruction of justice on the Ukraine issue mm-hmm. than it would be under the, yeah, this, I don't know. I have no, to think that's about fair. This. Yeah. That, I, no, I see what you're saying. That's fair. My concern is that what proving that what Trump did, let's say, was not for, to your point, we spoke about this earlier, not because it was for the good of the nation, which is what Nixon said repeatedly, right? But that it was really for his own benefit that he was, you know, giving over the national interest to foreign powers, which the framers were terrified of. That I think is tricky, where I think obstruction of justice might be (laughs) easier. I would agree with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What? Can, can we talk a we'll little bit about out. the handling? I know, I know we're going a little bit long on this topic, but I mean, the, I'm curious about your impression. Go We've ahead. talked on here, uh, you know, in previous weeks um, about Trump's handling of this. And, and one of the differences is that Twitter exists now, right? Which didn't exist uh, with Nixon or Clinton. And so Trump is always out talking about everything in sort of insane ways. Um, and they've thrown out, you know, a myriad uh, of, of defenses. So they've, they've, you know, that the, that the whistleblower is not real, that the facts aren't there. Well, the facts are there, but it doesn't matter that this is normal. I mean, anything and everything they've thrown out there to, to muddy the water. 
murders. Mm-hmm. My initial impression is to think that that just makes him look really guilty. Right. But I also think there is some there is something to it in that the more you muddy the waters, the more there are you know options for people to latch onto if they don't want to mm-hmm. uh, abandon abandon Trump. So I, I'm kind of curious about you know the, Trump's approach and whether you think that's going to benefit him in this partisan realm that we live in today, or if that's going to be more detrimental, or if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I, yes, yes, to all of what you just said. Yes. Um, I think the last thing you just said, which is the partisan environment is the most critical difference, as I had mentioned before, between where we are now and where we've been previously, right? So, um, you know, we see what Nixon did was you discredit the process, talk about a witch hunt, blame everyone, say that he was a victim, um, and to not comply with anything until the Supreme Court requires him to. And then he's like, oh, shit, and he resigns, right? Um, you know, investigative journalism was born out of Watergate. And so he felt like the media was after him, very similar to what we see now with Trump, right? They are after him. They are after him, right? Um, <laughs> and so, you know, got, constantly blaming the media and the fake news and all of that it was very similar to what Nixon did. Um, but the difference now is that sort of overwhelmingly the media that at least existed in the 1970s was behind his impeachment and removal because they believed that they trusted the Washington Post. They trusted that reporting, right? But now we've got Fox News, we've got Breitbart and other further right news organizations that are spinning the same bullshit that's coming off of Trump's Twitter. So we've got some media support. And because only certain people watch certain outlets and certain people watch another, they're hearing two very different stories about the same thing, Mm -hmm. which did not happen with Nixon. To some extent happened with Clinton with the 24-hour news cycle, but not as much as we see now. So I think the media is one thing that's different and and the partisan nature of the media and then the way that that spins into how people talk about it, all of that kind of comes down, I Mm. think, is similar. Um, The one thing that I will say that Clinton did really well that neither Nixon or Trump, Nixon did, and I don't think Trump is, I know Trump is not likely to do, is that Clinton pretended like it wasn't even happening. Right. Right? He governed. And to the point where his staff was like, dude, there's a thing happening around you where you probably need to talk about. He's like, I don't want to talk about it. I want to govern. You all can do the talking points. You can figure it all out. I'm going to focus on governing. I'm not going to discredit the process. I'm going to submit to whatever is given to me. I am going to, yes, play the victim and talk about myself as a pawn in a political game. And I'm going to blame New Gingrich. I'm going to blame the Republicans. But I'm not going to delegitimize a constitutionally protected process. And he apologized too, right? I mean, he was contrite in that way, which all of that worked out well for him. Exactly. Yes. It's better late than never. But you're right. As you say, Bill, he that victim he victimized himself in some ways. By being contrite. Right. You know, as as you were talking, I was thinking about like the guy that Alexander Vittman, the guy that testified today, you know, there were all these attacks on him suggesting, you know, Nick, he's a Soviet spy. Correct. (laughs) But I wonder at what point does it go too far? I mean, this guy, you know, he's, he was a a rock veteran. He was wounded. He has a purple heart. You know, he's, he he showed up to the hearing in his military uniform and Fox was trying to spin that today. At what point do people say, like, I can buy a lot of this spin and I like this guy, Trump, as president, but this feels like we're going to – we've stretched reality so far mm-hmm. where we can't say this guy <laughs> feels, feels – nodding his head no. <laughs> no I, at some point, there's got to be, you know, the, the sort of the, the McCarthy, have you no decency. Like, this is somebody who's who's not a partisan pawn. and. That's got to be tough. I really like to think that it does, but based on the world we live in, I'm just not convinced that it is. Ideally, yes, that should happen. Um, But uh, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I'm I'm getting increasingly cynical about it. (laughs) I mean, I will say from conversations I've had 
uh, a couple of students in class who were very um, open with their disdain for Schiff and Pelosi and their allegiance to Trump. And they've been very open about talking about it, which echoes a lot of what I think we've talked about today, which is all of this in, in at least in their minds. And if let's say they claim the mantle of Republican voters, which I shouldn't suggest that they do, but let's just say is that this is something that's orchestrated by Schiff, right? Shifty Schiff, mm-hmm. as Bill likes to call so him. Shifty. So shifty. Um, and of course, Nancy Pelosi has no place even taking up space or breathing, right? Mm-hmm. So oh, and Nick agrees. Okay. So overall <laughs> that, there really is this belief that every single thing that's happening, every document, every testimony, every person is somehow in the pocket of the deep state Democratic Party. That Schiff and Pelosi, the Clintons, mm-hmm. that this all, regardless of military uniform or not, Bill Taylor, who was, you know, handpicked by Trump, but was a never Trumper and never liked him all of a sudden, that all of this is rooted in this this hatred of the Democratic Party I, to the point so, where anyone that says anything against the president. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I, after I gave my cynical answer to I Bill, I, I do think that the other ahead, thing that, to keep in mind is that there's a core group of Republicans who will never, you know, not support Trump. And, and that was this case with Nixon, right? So really, it's it's at the margins. And, and so that part, I think maybe there is some hope, right? There are the Mitt Romneys who are like, I'm a Republican through and through. I don't like the Democratic Party. But at some point, this is too much. There are the Devin Nunez's who are who are never going to change, right? And and so I think, um, you know, I, I think it's not that there's going to be a point where the entire Republican Party and Fox News all decides, okay, this is too much. You've asked too much of us. But I do think it, what what makes a difference is what pushes it from fifty percent support for impeachment and removal to fifty five percent support for impeachment and removal. And those, <laughs> you know, those handful of people, it's not a handful when you look at it nationwide. I think that does matter. And I do think that that is possible. I think there are people out there who even watching Fox News are like, come on, guys, this is a bit much. Yeah. <laughs> and and while then the national public support is an important benchmark to start, it really is looking at partisan support, right? Mm. So we know the Democrats overwhelmingly approve of impeachment and removal. But for those members of the House and Senate, Republican members who have to decide what to do if this comes upon them, national support is not as important for them as party support and districts and state support. Because we're in an election year starting in January. Mm -hmm. Primary primary votes get cast starting in February, as Phil knows Mm -hmm. very well. So I think that the... If 84% of people, if 84% of Republicans, let's pretend that the approval rating translates to something about impeachment and removal, don't want to see him impeached or removed, those Republican members, what incentive do they have if they want to get reelected to vote for removal? Like what, you know, what is the evidence to, to Bill's point? What has to be laid on the laps of Republicans, strong always Trumpers, right? Mm-hmm. And members of government. What has to be laid in their lap for them to be like, well, yeah. I don't know if we're going to get that. No, I don't think we are. I, I don't think it, it physically exists. As much as this information, the information that we have is realistically damning in a lot of ways, as, as much as I would think that, you know, the more moderate Republicans, to your point, Phil, would kind of look at it and go, all right, enough is enough. Something needs to change. I think there's an equal uh, or even a greater possibility for them to go like, yeah, I, 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 I despise the other side or, or in the sense of I don't like their policies. I don't want to have that the possibility of that having more influence over my life. The economy is doing well. Just leave me alone and let this keep going, because this is not enough for me to to really move the needle. 
I think there's, we talk about frustration, things just kind of being enough for people, or they're just exhausted with everything. I think there's that exhaustion. Wow. I can't talk now. Um, can translate into just enough is enough in the sense that this, the inquiry, everything else needs to stop and just let things continue. That, like like last like four sentences you just said mm-hmm. could have been said about the Clinton impeachment correct mm-hmm. word for word mm-hmm. yeah I don't think that yeah I think those are extraordinarily yep. similar things and I really did not realize how similar they were so you said all the things yeah. <laughs> and when well, we had our midterms class where we talked about the 98 yeah. midterm we did and we talked that. about impeachment I remember none of that <laughs> we can go on about that we should probably move on proclamation brewing company which is out of Rhode Island and this is uh, their derivative beer and my understanding is they have a couple of different derivatives this is their derivative citra and it's an American pale ale uh, it's this is really really good um it's you know i've 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 talked before about how i i like ipas but i don't necessarily like them when they're super in your face this is really subtle it's got the hoppiness it's got the citrusy elements that i really like in an ipa but it's really smooth it's kind of it's just it's really good i could drink a lot of these um yeah i I give it uh, multiple thumbs up and i would definitely buy more (laughs) (laughs) i could drink a lot of these (laughs) it's true as the podcast goes on i think phil likes beer more yes yes Ah. yeah yeah (laughs) nick what are we having we are having a uh, a pinched uh, American style IPA, which is from uh, Midnight Pig, uh, and they're out of. They're right around here, aren't they? Are they? I think they're close by. Where the hell are they? Uh, I don't know these things. They are out of. Well, where the hell is this? It's not on the can. Plainfield, Plainfield, oh, Illinois, right, right around the corner. Yeah. Um, yeah, like Philip <laughs> said, we had had this on the podcast, and we we never put it uh, or we never reviewed it. Um, I definitely put it in the the untapped thing, so I know I enjoyed it. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's good. Like it's uh, American style IPAs. I mean, I assume that's just an American pale ale. Yeah, I, I think so. Just trying yeah, to, yeah. But um, yeah, I like it. It's got a, a decent head on it. Um, it's not overly carbonated. Um, it's pretty hoppy, mm-hmm. um, not a lot of sweetness, but not a lot of bitterness either. Right. Like a good, it's a good blend between them. Um, yeah, I like it. I do too. It mm-hmm. describes itself as notoriously <laughs> authentic mm-hmm. and that's, I, I I'd like, like yeah, I know mm-hmm. that's how I want to be described. <laughs> I will just note quickly, since I've been ill, I am not partaking in any beer. It's not because I don't want to, or yeah. the color of these actually, I suck. <laughs> because actually, Phil, the beer you just described sounds like something I would love. Yes, yes. So hopefully next time next I'm time. on, I will, I will be able to participate. Sounds good. Yeah. Um, if you guys want to find out or check out the beers that we have on the podcast, uh, download Untapped, which you can find on iOS or Android. Look for Barstool Politics on there, and you will find all of our reviews. Speed round. All right. So dramatic developments over the weekend as President Trump on Sunday announced that uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the elusive Islamic State commander, died during U.S. military operation in Syria. In what the president called a, quote, dangerous and daring nighttime operation, helicopters inserted a team of special operation troops into a a volatile area of northwest Syria where they began an assault on a militant compound that culminated in Baghdadi's death. Trump did not pull any punches on his telling of events and noted, quote, Baghdadi was vicious and violent, and he died in a vicious and violent way as a coward running and crying. He died like a dog. He died like a coward. (laughs) 
he did. <laughs> That's right. Oh, as is common Could practice with Trump, the president no. made himself very. <laughs> he killed a kid and detonated a suicide vest. No, he was yeah, a coward. He was a coward. I'm, yeah. I'm not. I'm not going to disagree with that. Uh, as is common practice with Trump, the president made himself very much part of the story. For example, in the question and answer section. Trump applied that the 9-11 attacks wouldn't have happened if the government had just listened to the advice he offered in his book. He also reiterated the claim that we should have kept the Iraqi oil and that Baghdadi's death was a bigger deal than Osama bin Laden. Phil, this is a significant foreign policy achievement and for the United uh, no, States. I, I 100% like agree Trump can't with you. I mean, this is, this is what, a what's your big reaction deal. To these this is a significant thing. Uh, you know, Baghdadi was a bad person. I, you know, from a U.S. foreign policy standpoint, this this is a massive accomplishment. Um, but yes, I, you know, we've talked about on here before. There there are lots of things that Trump has done that I don't agree with policy wise. There have been others in which the policy thing that he's doing is good in and of itself. It's more the, 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 the way in which he does it that is a yeah. problem. And this is an example of which if he had just gone out and made an announcement and walked away, it would have been, I think, a win for him. And and then the the afterwards, the the sort of continuing, the questions, the stuff he talked about, I mean, the, the stuff that it's just bullshit, the stuff that he's making up, right, to tell a story afterwards that, that um, just, again, takes something that should have been a win for him and turns it into something Less. The other part of this that I think is really interesting is that my understanding is that we had intelligence on on where Baghdadi was for months. I, some, one of the reports I read said as far back as like May even, um, which indicates that one of two things happened here. One of two things. One, either mm-hmm. Trump knew about this when he decided to remove troops from northern Syria, which would be a weird thing. Or two, he didn't. He was not involved in this. And that this is, you know, gets around to uh, the extent to which the bureaucracy has sort of learned to deal with a Trump presidency in which intelligence and the military basically wait until the last minute to, to talk to him. None of that even gets at the fact that, that Trump didn't share the information with uh, with Democrats and Congress and all sorts of other stuff. But, but yeah, I mean, it, it's I know, I know. But it's one of those where, again, this should be a huge positive thing for him. They're and, leakers, and the leakers. way he did it and how he Very went true. about it just kind of drains the energy out of that. Nick, yesterday, to reiterate Trump's point, he said Baghdadi was dead as a doornail. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes, he was. <laughs> I, I mean. Just in case we weren't sure. Right. <laughs> Um, yeah, this is an interesting one. The timing is, is suspect to me considering the, the developments in Syria, but at the same time, you know, we, there were intelligence analysts from the CIA and other intelligence agencies that pretty much knew where bin Laden was for months prior to the raid. Uh, so I, I would imagine it's something similar as opposed to either they're not telling Trump until the very last minute or, um, they honestly didn't know, um, yeah, this is this is a this is a big policy win, and the fact that it isn't getting more attention, especially when the narrative, especially coming from the, I keep saying, especially like an idiot, um, uh, that's coming out of the uh, uh, the mainstream media, is that you know we're removing uh, troops from Syria. That's it's the it could be the reemergence of ISIS, and it's this really huge foreign policy debacle that we need to handle. And then this happens. This is this is your win. All you had to do was walk away and not say anything. Um, yeah, it's as these things happen. And again, like you were saying, Phil, there are so many, not so many, but there are a number of 
policy decisions or events that have taken place under this administration that people tend to overlook because of the craziness that immediately comes in right behind it. Um, yeah, I, I think that this shows that the U.S. still has the ability to handle uh, and, and monitor and, and destroy elements of, of ISIS or any terrorist organization in the Middle East with almost impunity. Uh, and, you know, we, we have the tools that we need. But again, that's completely overshadowed by the fact that. Right. There's crazy shit being said after that. Well, and it's his own fault, right? I mean, that's the thing. It's not as if somebody else is forcing him. You know, when he was finished with his statement, I thought, walk away. Yeah. Walk, I'm not a Trump fan. Obama did. He read the thing and he literally walked away. And he, he, Trump hesitates for a second and says, questions? Oh, no, no, oh, no, 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 Right? You, whoever the guy like behind the screen is like, no, no questions, no questions, <laughs> run. So he makes this more difficult for him. And the sequencing that you both hit on is really important because, you know, the, the troop withdrawal from Syria, if, if Trump was aware of this, he should have waited until after the operation. And I, one of my students mentioned this. and It was a brilliant point. You you kill Baghdadi and then you say, we're out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And everybody's like, hey, that makes a lot of sense, yes. right? The, the head of ISIS is gone. That's right. Uh, the, the only thing I was, the, and this is me being sort of cynical, which is usually Nick's wheelhouse. So I don't know, rubbing <laughs> off on me or whatever. But, you know, a lot of the reports, at least that I read, suggested that the Kurds were critical in the intelligence to mm-hmm. find where he was and to, and to also get there and know how to get in. And so- did we pull troops out? Because we're like, we got everything we need from the Kurds now. We know where Baghdadi is. And so we're like, all right, we're just going to leave them by themselves, which makes sense to me if that's the case. But to your point, Bill, to flip the order of it would have looked so much better and didn't look like we were just like leaving them high and dry. Well, And he thanks Russia yes. specifically in the statement. And then he mentions the Kurds were sort of helpful, but it wasn't the same kind of thing. Yeah. And yeah, that's bizarre. I know. Yes. My favorite thing about all this, if you're not following Russia on Twitter, you there's should. A, there's a Russia Twitter account. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Russia? Oh, yeah. Like, literally Russia. Russia. <laughs> yeah, they have. It's like through their Okay, hold on. Let me look at this Because <laughs> they, they were trashing. So Trump says, you know, like Russia Another knew way that, and they helped. And Russia was like, no, we didn't. Well, I'm just real quickly, <laughs> one more way that, this is, like, that Trump oh. has undermined his own, undermined oh, no. his ahead, own success is because of his penchant for bullshit, right? He has been saying for years that he has destroyed ISIS, that ISIS is done. And so when you talk about for years that ISIS is no longer a threat because of what he has done, then the killing of the leader of ISIS is no longer a significant thing. It should be a significant thing. If he had continued to talk about the threat of ISIS and and hadn't felt the need to like ramp up the, the success that he had had, then this would have been, but he had kind of happened. let the air out of the, the significance of this announcement. Um, in, a, in a year for the year leading up to it by talking about how ISIS was no longer relevant. That's right. I don't necessarily think that's, <clears throat> I, I mean, what I was saying earlier that the narrative over the past several weeks since uh, uh, he decided to remove troops from Syria is that again, ISIS could reemerge and it's a threat that we're not paying attention to. So I, I think this was not necessarily, not a great move or great timing, but in the sense of, you know, we can still do this and keep ISIS in check or destroy what we need to when we need to. And they're not a serious threat. Look what we did. Well, so they, the reason the reason people were questioning whether they were a serious threat was because we basically pulled out <laughs> and let all of them get out of their cells that we they'd been detained. We right. And they started back. running around, <laughs> killing them. Right. So the, the one thing quickly, if I if you can indulge me, because Twitter never dies. Right. Is that somebody put on Twitter right after Trump gave his speech? I don't know if Bill's looking at me like you saw this, that right after Obama comes on TV and says that they got Osama bin Laden, Trump tweets. Don't congratulate Obama. The Navy SEALs killed Bin Laden. <laughs> well, 
you know. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's the beauty of Trump. It's the beauty of Trump and Twitter. Uh, All right, let's talk about the Democratic primary. So we've entered the self-loathing stage of the Democratic primary with doubts rising about former Vice President Joe Biden, his ability to finance a multi-state primary campaign, questions about Senator Elizabeth Warren's viability in the general election, and skepticism that Mayor Pete can broaden his appeal beyond white voters. Uh, Democratic leaders are engaging in a familiar right, fretting about who is in the race and whether we need to bring Hillary Clinton back and longing for that white night to enter the contest at the last minute. There's even been a number of stories, again, about Hillary Clinton and others re-entering mm-hmm. the campaign. Good thing we've got Suzanne to break this all down for us. Suzanne, what's your assessment of the state of the Democratic primary, and what should our listeners be focusing in on? Well, if I could say quickly, the thing that I'm laughing about on the on uh, you know, this outline, mm-hmm. you have Vice President Joseph R. Biden, yeah. in case we didn't know what his name was. <laughs> Just, I, like, I didn't want to get confused. I like to be official. <laughs> I really appreciate that. The middle initial matters. So it really, it helped me out a lot because I was confused, like, who are we talking about? So, um, okay, so here's for me. His middle what, name is Ralph. Is that right? No, I have no oh, idea. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you totally got me on that one. Um, so for me, the thing that's been the most interesting, if I go back to the last debate, was it was very clear that the, the front runners – thought that Hil- that uh, Hillary, wow, Elizabeth Warren was the new front runner because polls were getting her either over or within the margin of error. So the attacks and all the criticisms, even Mayor Pete, you know, mm-hmm. subdued little dude is like coming at her hard, right? So what we know from um, what the literature tells us at least is that once a candidate is seen as the front runner, then that candidate gets more media, ex- media exposure and that we become more skeptical because we see more about the flaws of this candidate and that scrutiny creates a decline in poll numbers. So we've seen a lot of volatility. This is what I've been watching in the last week where some polls have, you know, Elizabeth Warren ahead outside the margin of error. Some polls have Joe Biden ahead by like 17 points. There's a lot of volatility across the polls, across the different polling houses that I haven't really seen this for a while. And I don't know if it's because Warren is the was seen as the front runner and is now declining. I don't know whether it's Bernie Sanders. He's been on this steep, de- not steep decline. He's been on a continual decline. I think that's still happening. His heart's been on a steep His decline. heart for sure was. <laughs> um, but then Biden is just like kind of hanging. He's not going anywhere, which I'm not really sure how I feel about that because that is not the candidate that wins Iowa. Mm-hmm. And the candidate that wins Iowa gets momentum to do well in New well, depending on the order, I think New Hampshire's first, but to go to South Carolina at least, right? And so I'm the invisible primary, right? This time where no votes have been cast, but the candidates are trying to raise money and they're vying for support. The tightness and the volatility of the polls among Sanders and Warren and Biden to me is fascinating. And that Biden's just like coasting no matter what he does. He's not going up, he's not, he's just like hanging. And no one else can crack it. Like Pete got a lot. He got a pretty big boost after the last debate, but he's not even close. Not even close to being mm. in the top. So you're saying we shouldn't trust the polls? No, it's <laughs> not what I'm saying. I'm going to take that, that and run with I it. I think that the volatility <laughs> suggests that the Democratic primary so, voters don't know what the fuck they're doing. Sure, it's so early. So, so at a crucial so piece of candidates. a crucial piece of information, so yeah, I, I have Googled it. Joe Biden's, Biden's <laughs> middle name is Robinette. It's my only. Job. So there's that to, to go with. First of all, um, but it is R O B I N E E. <laughs> no, no, how Robinette. do you spell that? Um, <laughs> I would have said Ramrod before Robinette. So, uh, my question for you is that like his mother's maiden name? I need to do some more. My Googling. question, Suzanne, okay, is, is uh, 
is about um, this is why the, the listeners the, tune uh, in. <laughs> no, I saw somebody point out today that That's at this point, in if we right go there. back to two thousand and eight, at this point, Hillary Clinton's up by twenty points in nas- nationwide polls, and then Barack Obama wins Iowa, and that like changes the perception, and everything sort of swings right. nationally. I, I sort of suspect That's that right. Biden is kind of the default candidate. Many people outside of New Hampshire and Iowa just haven't thought yeah. that much about this yet. Um, so, my, and and that doesn't necessarily mean that. So, I think Biden is the most likely right. to fall, but it could be you know Warren. It could be. Uh, what are the chances that somebody who's on the periphery right now? So, uh, you know, uh, Buttigieg is the obvious example, but you know, who who knows Harris or 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 uh, uh, Booker or somebody like that? What are the chances that one of them actually surges up and and does this? Uh, not in Iowa. I don't. I don't see that. I don't see a sort of peripheral candidate to use your phrase, which is a good one to, to win Iowa. But from, so South Carolina may be a little more likely, particularly if we're thinking about the two candidates of color you just suggested where South Carolina may give them a little more traction. But for me, I think what, what and I need to do more digging on this because this is what was so critical in 2008. And this goes to the point of Joe Biden having no cash on hand and like his campaigns basically broke yeah. mm-hmm. is no one in Iowa that worked for Obama was surprised Obama won Iowa because their field office was their field staff and the way that they grassrooted it was incredible. Nobody in Iowa was surprised that Obama won, but the nation was surprised. So what I've seen so far, Elizabeth Warren has the best grassroots presence in Iowa. I saw something this week that that Biden's lead person in Iowa doesn't even live in Iowa. Right. That's a problem. It's really bad. <laughs> it's I mean, a real so, big problem. Right? So, I mean, I, I'm so torn on Biden because he did that 60 Minutes interview this week mm-hmm. and was really good. In that kind of format where it's a slow conversation, he's compelling. They can edit things and make him not he sound gets, like he an idiot. He needs to set the tone and the right. pace. Yes. Right. Where it's more conversational. Yeah. He is much better. Than he is in the debates, yes. and so yeah. But but the fact that they don't the guy their their lead guy in Iowa is not in Iowa. That's a Maybe he's in New Hampshire, but but you know, that's <laughs> can't bad. trust anybody. But you know, caucus voters are different than primary voters. That's why New Hampshire matters, Phil. New Hampshire does matter. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So yeah, time to talk booing. Yes. All right. So President Trump showed at the Nationals Park for Game Five of the World Series on Sunday, and he was when he was displayed on the jumbotron, the crowd <laughs> erupted into a chorus of boos and then a chant of "Lock him up." They were saying "Ooh," <laughs> they were Burns. shocked to see him there. <laughs> boo Burns. I was saying "Boo Burns." <laughs> Since then, though, <laughs> there's your title. That's, that's good. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Since then, a most curious debate has developed over the appropriateness of booing and the lock him up chant. Was this an acceptable expression of public frustration or a troubling reflection on the state of the deterioration of democratic norms about civil discourse? MSNBC host Joe Scarborough uh, argued that the chants were sickening no matter who yells them. Democratic Senator Chris Coons, Coons was also troubled by the chant, stating, quote, the office of the presidency deserves respect, even when the actions of our president at times don't. Phil, your lectures frequently uh, draw um, booze. Uh, <laughs> uh, what should we make of the presidential debate over presidential I think this is actually, I mean, this is a really interesting <laughs> debate. I've, I've kind of wrestled with it because I, I like norms, right? And so the idea of norms is important and, and matters. Yeah. And so I understand why people are made uncomfortable by... Uh, you know, a lock him up chant and the, and the comparisons to, you know, anytime you're chanting about locking up your political opponent, that's a problem. Uh, but 
there are really important differences here in that this is what what happens at Trump's rallies is that a political leader Trump is encouraging people to you know ch- lead this chant of locking up his political um, rivals. This is a sort of spontaneous organic response to a president who is pretty unpopular and is mired in a legal crisis or a legal scandal right now. I, in some ways, this is very. I mean, this is sort of essentially democratic, right? Not, not, you know, this is, you know, small D democratic in that, uh, you know, again, I think if, if Erdogan went to some sort of public rally and the Turkish people booed him, we would see that as like this great, you know, expression of democracy and public, public speaking. Um, so I, I'm not terribly disturbed by this because I think Donald Trump has done stuff that is questionable <laughs> legally. Um, I, I'm less comfortable with the lock him up than I am with the booing. Um, but you know, when you're a public figure and you put yourself out there, you have to be able to handle the public response to you. I mean, presidents have been booed at sporting events for a really long time. This isn't necessarily anything new. I'm not all that disturbed by it um, in the way that others are. But I, I don't know. I mean, what, do you feel differently, Nick? Do you want to you weigh in on booing? Um, you hate snowflakes. I do hate snowflakes, <laughs> really do, and especially the DC snowflakes. They're the worst type of snowflakes. Um, we lost them again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the one that was left. Hey man, I'm fine with that. Um, yeah, I I have to agree with Phil on this one. I'm I'm not overly concerned about this as as much as I would like to kind of toe the line and think you know you should be better than that and you know it, it, it's just it apparently. Uh, was a very spontaneous thing. <laughs> and and um, yeah, I, I just, it's, it, it's, it's, it, it is a very, a very American response yeah. to this. And, and it's something that you don't really see in many other parts of the world. It you know, it didn't get out of hand. It's not violent. It was just very kind of passive aggressive American. <laughs> and the beauty was, so the Jumbotron was showing soldiers, right? And the, everybody's going crazy. And then they go to Trump and the crowd instantly shifted oh, yeah. and started booing. Yeah. And then they switch back to sh- soldiers and the crowd starts cheering yeah. again. Right. I mean, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I should, the caveat of that, a caveat of that is uh, whether we're talking about this instance or Trump's rallies or anything like this, the, the, the kind of behavior that we're seeing in terms of political discourse on both sides of the aisle needs to come back towards the center. It's not, this seems to only be getting worse as time goes on. Um, and I'm not sure where it ends. Um, but the fact that it's getting so easy to have these types of responses just suggests to me that it's only going to get worse. That's Um, right. So I I'm, I'm not appreciative of that. Suzanne booing. So I have two thoughts. One is when you have the, the quote by Chris Coons here um, talking about, you know, the office of president deserves respect even when the actions of the president don't, which is good. I think that that's great. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, as a Democratic senator, I think that I appreciate that he said that because he served or yeah, he did serve with a president who was a Democrat, who was constantly belittled, constantly dehumanized and, con- you know, constantly told that he wasn't even allowed to take up space in the White House, let alone anywhere else. And none of the Republican members of Congress were saying that there was a problem if someone booed him, there was a problem if he was yelled at at a, a State of the Union address or whatever it was, that now for there to be such outrage on the right because of the way that the office isn't being respected. And of course, I'm talking about Chris Coons, it just made me think of it, um, that I didn't see anyone doing that when this was happening on that side against Obama. So again, you know, turnaround is fair play. I'm not surprised that this is happening. There's the the political scientist in me that says, well, it passes the clear and present danger test. So 
the speech is protected, so you can boo the president. <laughs> Let's just like really go bare bones, yeah. right? Like you can boo the president. Now to Nick's point, is it in good form? I'm not particularly bothered by it. I, I always think about this when people like boycott going to the White House. It's mm-hmm. the same kind of thing. It's you can make a political statement with words, with fists, not violent, but fists in the air or with kneeling or whatever it is. And to me, this is just one of those political statements. It, it felt clever to me, right? I mean, so I think the, the context matters. So when the president says it, when in an elected official, they have a certain power, you know, a crowd doesn't have any power. So there's a difference between when the president says it and when the crowd organically responds. And at the same time, I also think that, you know, Trump has has said this over and over, lock her up, lock her up, so that the crowd instantly knew mm-hmm. to respond in this way is, is you know, good. On, I know you don't like the Nationals fans, but good on them for being <laughs> clever, right? To say, like, this is something, like, it, it couldn't have been, it wasn't prepared. It wasn't like they I knew this. I want to know this. how many Clinton staffers were there, <laughs> which right. one started the chant. DNC, how much did they pay them? And what black site they're being sent. Right. So I mean, this this feels much more democratic, to Phil's point, in the small D sense, where the, it's the public pushing back. And again, it's a liberal city, so it's not surprising. Trump should have known better the video why would of, you go exactly right? he should have known better the video of him when he's initially clapping and cheering you see trump's face and then when he realizes that they're booing him and his well, you know, i mean the, i was you talking about smile the time. to a frown I, in my mind i, mean, I, I don't that. know this but it theater. seems logical my, that this was planned was, i'm sorry because go ahead it was coming on the heels of the baghdadi thing right the expectation i think was uh, we've just taken out this major we have this foreign policy success will make this public appearance and the crowd will love me. Mm, And I think that's part of the reason why they were taken Mm. so off guard by it. Mm -hmm. Think about when George W. Bush threw out the first pitch in New York after 9-11. And I get that's a different time. It's a a different place, different event. But the way in which he was able to galvanize the country, and Trump's just in a different space. And maybe it's a different political environment. So many things are different. That was not apples to apples. No, no. Um, Apples to oranges. (laughs) Volkswagen. <laughs> and George W. Bush threw a strike. He right? did yeah. a really damn good well, he one. He owns yeah. a baseball team. I hope he could have thrown a strike. Yes. Do you think Trump could throw a strike? Could, could he throw? Could he throw it over the plate? Anywhere near the plate? He, when he was young, he said he could have been a professional baseball player. Yes, he That's loves true. to talk about that. <laughs> I don't think his physique allows him to throw a ball over the plate anymore. <laughs> I, I, you know, it, it was dumb of him to go in the first place, yeah. but I would be curious to see what the reaction would be in just about any other city in the country. If he had shown up, I, I, mm-hmm. I like if it was Houston, for example, I'm less confident that he would show up in Houston. Right. Yeah. Baseball, yeah. Is, yeah. I, I, baseball teams are located in urban centers, right? No matter which baseball team you go to, you're going to have, uh, it's not, you know, even Houston, I think Houston would be maybe more receptive than, than, than DC, but mm-hmm. even, you know, DC, it's, people were pointing out that the place where the, where the national stadium is, was a couple of elections ago, it was like 50-50 Republican Democrat. And it is now like it went 20% Trump, but it's been a big swing. Houston, you know, Texas, people think of Texas as this Republican stronghold. And it's, you know, it, it's Republican state. You get into Houston or Dallas and and you're, I mean, it's a big diverse city. It's gonna, I don't know that his reaction, that the public reaction would have been all that much warmer there. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, DC, you're on notice. On notice. <laughs> 
All right, our final topic. So we learned last week that the anonymous senior administrative official who wrote the infamous New York Times op-ed, which Nick loved, has a new book coming out next month titled A Warning. According to the back cover of the book, that quote, the truth about President Trump must be spoken. And the author promises you will hear a great deal from Donald Trump directly. For there is no better witness to his character than his own words. As Dan Dresner pointed out in a column this week, the tweets have, have not been kind to Anonymous. Axios reporter Jonathan Swain tweeted, quote, Is this douchebag still quietly, oh so quietly, saving the Republic? Spare us. Soledad O'Brien wrote... <laughs> <laughs> Don't be anonymous, coward. Also, go girl. Yeah, Dresner, a political scientist, tough political scientist at Tufts University, uh, found the negative reaction a bit surprising and noted that the author has taken no advance or intended and, and intends to donate a large fraction of the royalties to nonprofit organizations. He also noted that James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and John Jay published the Federalist Papers uh, anonymously. Right? So true. Yes. Now he's not suggesting that the the anonymous is on the league is in the league of the founding fathers, but he does note that the op-ed has aged remarkably well, and that the contrast between the anonymous writer and officials like James Matt, James Mattis, John Kelly, and others who have failed to speak out against Trump is pretty dramatic. Suzanne, does Dresner have a point here, or is the Twittersphere correct in attacking <laughs> anonymous? <laughs> well, again, anytime you bring up the founding fathers, I'm gonna, especially James Madison, I'm gonna get super jazzed. Yeah. So, um, and and good to point out, as Dresner did, as you did, that you no one is suggesting that anonymous is on par with founding fathers or right as well as yeah. the three of them did, but. I would, what the way I, words, <laughs> given especially the way that President Trump has talked about the whistleblower, I do not blame this person one bit for wanting to remain anonymous. That if there is legitimate fear, and I'm not suggesting that anonymous feels that way, but looking at it from the outside, that there's legitimate fear that if he or she outs themselves, that there could be some kind of negative consequences for it coming from those that with which he or she, with whom he or she served. I don't blame this person for staying anonymous. It does to some extent, I think probably compromise the credibility because as soon as the op-ed came out, everyone was like, oh, it's all fake. Someone from the Democratic Party wrote this. This isn't so, real. I'm yeah, sure I mean, some, my, that some of that um, is going to happen here. The anonymous thing is, is an interesting part of it. But I, I like, what do you, how do you feel, Suzanne, about so, the fact that they reactions. continue to serve? So I understand why they might want to remain anonymous. But if they have such a problem with what Trump is doing, um, continuing to serve in the administration and remaining anonymous is like a, I, I don't, I'm not sure how much, you know, forgiveness or, you know, how much, uh, I don't know, honor there is in that. I, there's, there's something about, saying and because my my understanding is they present themselves as a high ranking official this isn't some career bureaucrat necessarily who's doing this it's a high ranking official so i i don't i mean i i'm i'm torn i get the idea of hey i'm going to stay in the fight and i'm going to do what i can to to you know bring a little good where i can but uh, I don't know. I, you know, when I teach ethics and war and whatnot, I, I do feel like there's some responsibility to speak out. If you think that what's happening is wrong, then there's a responsibility to, to resign and, and speak out. So while I think that, I, while I see your point, the only thing that I would say to, to come at it from a different angle is that this person knows that whatever he or she writes is only going to be accepted by about if we're lucky, 50% of the population, right? So resigning in principle and writing a book isn't going to get this person anywhere except to expose her, his or her story. But staying in the institution and to your point, trying to do some good, right? Maybe this is one of those gatekeepers that keeps the president from doing things that would make it a lot more scary for us to live in the United States or in this world, right? And I, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic, so I should maybe pull it back a bit. But 
I think there is something to be said in this time with this president and this situation to actually stay in and serve, to try to mitigate whatever we're going to read in this book from, uh, from this person. Nick, I know you don't feel strongly about this at all. So I'll, I'll just jump <laughs> we in. Just yeah, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, this person has an obligation to if, – if we're at a point where we're talking about removing a, a sitting president from power and they have this – what is apparently very uh, nuanced and detailed information about not only their behavior but the policies that are being put forth by the administration and specifically the president, you have an obligation to be part of that process. You should be telling everything that you know that is untoward that's going on. If there is information out there that could potentially be damaging, if we're talking about behavior that is so detrimental that we need that person in the position that they're in to mitigate a potential disaster or, or the behavior of a president that is completely um, baffling to, to, to most you know, sane individuals, then they need to come forward and say that immediately. And they should have done it by now. If you're going to, if you have time to write a book and then still stay in your position and not tell anybody about it, it just, it it (laughs) baffles me that, that you would, you would take this route. I, I just, I, I, I'm so angry about it. I, I can can't see even. it. If y'all could see him right now, there's flames coming out, oh. shaking. Let me mm. play devil's advocate because I don't disagree with what you're saying, Nick. But but I can think about it is there's there's a hierarchy of courage, and I would say the individuals like the, the guy today. What's his name? His name is uh, Alexander Vidman, who is an active member of the military. He currently works in the White House, and he went and testified today. Like that's the highest level of courage courage. You know, he's doing it. And the individuals who testified recently, you know, publicly, all of that, that's great. Uh, Anonymous is lower, right? Because he is somebody who is, he or she is, is still hiding their identity. It's still better than the James Mattis, the Rex Tillerson, the John Kelly, the H.R. McMasters, who are right there and who could come out and say all these things publicly. Yes. Why? Because you're sharing information, right? You're you're doing so. You're arguing that this president is unfit. You're providing evidence in terms of history. You know the, the way historians or history will remember this. For me, that's better, right? No. You're part of the argument. You're part of an argument. And yeah. we we talked about through this entire episode. We talked about the perception of the media and yeah. its deep state conspiracy and all that. If your point is to to really be ethical about this and be be justified and and understood in what you're doing, then you need to say that this is not a partisan thing. I'm not, you know, try, this is not about money. It's not about removing him because I don't agree with his policy. You need to say that this is a completely nonpartisan thing that I'm putting forward, and that this is this is a this is to the detriment of the of the nation as a whole. Like this is this is not courage. It's just not. It's just not. I, I think I think in terms of making the case to say that this president is a danger, he's unfit, there's Give real the value. Evidence. We've got a lot of the evidence out there, right? Also, yeah, the other people. But remember, this when this op-ed first came out, it wasn't as if all those conversations were happening, no, right? It's, you're right. It, he's, he or she started that conversation. You're I right. think that's valuable. Yes, yeah. absolutely. But now you have that cover. If you wanted to do that, you could be part of this process. But instead, you're going to write a book about it. But I think the difference to point out, I would suggest, is that whatever's in this book will, sounds like, give detail on his lack of fitness for the job. Sure. It may not have any evidence or any suggestion that he's done anything that is impeachable. Oh, I agree. Right? So when you say he should come out, he should give everything he knows, or he or she should do all the things, in principle, but 
we don't know whether anything in this book would add evidence to removing or impeachment of the president. No, you're so right. But if we're talking, absolutely. Yeah. In, in the sense of concrete facts and evidence. Yes, absolutely. If you're talking about moving the needle with that five to 10% of people that could be swayed by the fitness of a president in office with this information, that makes a significant difference. Mm -hmm. Because realistically, you're going to have a real hard time convincing people with this investigation that he should be removed from office. I I think you're going to have a really, really hard time. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that's going to save you at this point is that he comes off looking like such a fucking batshit crazy, crazy person that so it's, I'm, I'm it, less, people are I'm less cynical about the choice. ability I'm, to I'm move the needle. I think there are people that people can be <laughs> convinced that he should be removed <laughs> from office. But I think that the chances of that happening are far greater with the people who go on TV and televise and televised hearings and testify about stuff as opposed to an anonymous person who's writing a book about the fitness for office. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I come down sort of on the same side as Nick, but from a, from a different angle, which is that I, I think that I think people can be convinced. I don't think an anonymous book is, it's just going to go on the pile of all sorts of other crazy stories about the president. Whereas if someone actually, you know, testifies, mm-hmm. goes, you know, actually presents a case um, that, that lends credibility to it in a way that, that might, that might actually matter. I'm buying you but, the book too. But either way, <laughs> if I could say quickly, either way, whether it's coming out and testifying publicly to what what some of you were saying and or writing a book is the way that this is going to be spent on the right is that whoever this person is is deeply in the pockets of the Democratic Party. They'll go back and see if this yep. person ever donated, right? How this person's been connected to, I'm sure, the Clintons at some point. So regardless of how the information is spread, whether it be through anonymous book or public testimony, anything that is critical of the president is automatically suspect. Because there's got to be some conspiracy. Correct. And if you're looking for the biggest bang for the buck, doing this anonymously, Nick, is more important. Let's say he's whatever his level, he or she's level is. Doing it secretly is, it gets going to get more attention. People are going to buy the book. Right, right. It has, if your goal is to get this individual, get Trump out of, out of office, there's some value to doing it this way as opposed to, you know, just coming out and saying who you are and like, well, you're nobody. I mean, do you think people are going to? more people are going to buy the book or you're going to listen to testimony on TV. You're going to buy the book. I don't know if that's true anymore. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's the case. We're going to review the book on the podcast. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> I can't wait. Oh my God. Is that it? Are we done? Wrap we are it up. done. Right. <laughs> Suzanne, thank you as always for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, what the hell am I doing? I have to do all the things. Um, yeah, if you guys, uh, like I said at the beginning, like the podcast, have questions, comments, beer suggestions, anything like that, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics, beers that we try you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android, uh, just for Barstool Politics on there. The podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Um, and then the, uh, the live event, which uh, we'll be doing on November 20th, which is a Wednesday from uh, 6.30 to uh, 8 p.m. here in Naperville on uh, North Central's campus. Uh, myself, Bill, Phil, Suzanne, uh, Tom, we will all be there taking questions, uh, doing an episode. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun, so please join us. Uh, feel free to show up uh, or grab a ticket from uh, Eventbrite. Just search for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, it helps us get a headcount, so I would very much appreciate that. Um, but either way, yeah, please come join us. Um, everything is free. I, I think I said that. Yep. Yeah. I'm but free say it again. is important. It's free. Free yeah. is very free, important. Free. 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 People like free. free. It's free. Um, did I miss anything? No, it was good. It was a good okay. wrap up. Yeah. Great. Thank you again, Suzanne. Thanks so much, guys. I was saying boo <laughs>
<laughs> Cheers. Shut up and sit down.